Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I think US might have 26 or 30 gigawatt hours in the grid, and we have done four out of that. By next year, we'll probably have achieved 10 plus gigawatt hours. That's a really, really big feather in our cap. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. It's a new year, an opportunity for us to go into organizations where I'm not always talking with the founder or the CEO. Sometimes we dig into the entrepreneurial side of the industry. If you're new here, I want to say welcome in and I want to thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. I want to thank you for investing the only non-renewable resource you've got. That, of course, is your time. I promise to take good care of it today as I introduce you to one of my industry friends, colleagues, someone I've known for a few years and have um, very much wanted to get on to the show. I've actually had an interview that never got published. We'll talk about that and more. But today's entrepreneur is someone who has earned my deep respect for their ability to navigate this industry and intentionally or perhaps unintentionally climb to effectively the top of a family-run, family-controlled business that is deploying gigawatts of solar and battery across the Midwest and have pretty quickly, in relative terms, pretty quickly become, I would say, I would call my household name for those contractors that um, respect solid engineering. And uh, we'll find out more about why. Sohan Das is the Vice President of Renewable Energy at EVS Inc. And if you haven't heard of EVS, well, my guess is you aren't doing community solar in the Midwest because you certainly would have in that case. We're going to dig into how and why Sohan got involved with EVS and rose to basically run everything not finance and HR related to this multi-million dollar enterprise. I hope that the kinds of conversations that we have here on Suncast, digging into the reasons why those on the front lines of the clean energy transition are building the enterprises that they're building, if that's interesting to you, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show because that's how you'll ensure that you'll get right delivered to your mobile device every week. Two shows, our Tactical Tuesday and our Executive Profile, like this long-form interview with Sohan. You can find all of our back catalog outside of the podcast app that you are probably listening on at mysuncast.com. More than 650 such episodes and counting. And that's also where you can learn ways to engage with us, maybe even become a partner with us here on the show. But most of you are not here for that. You're here for this interview. So let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we dig into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. So on one of the things that I love sharing at the beginning of these episodes, as you probably know, because you're a regular listener, uh, is that I'm a bit of a quote hoarder and I want to share some of the inspiration that I draw from. So I'd invite you to think about a quote that is inspiring to you or perhaps 
you often like to share. I'll share one uh, to kick us off. And this quote is from Ivan Turgenev. I, thought, I hope I'm saying that right. And it is, if we wait for the moment when absolutely everything is right, we shall never begin. As many times as we hear that, even as entrepreneurs or humans or you know, Instagram scrollers, the intellectual assent to understand that there's never a right time, like we'll wait until it's the right time to have children or the right time to start a business. And the action of moving beyond that fear wall, is they're two totally separate domains, you know? Um, so, Han, I, I invite you, would you share a quote with us that, um, that you find inspiring? Well, firstly, I love the quote that you shared and then very deep and very relevant to what we do on a daily basis. One quote that has inspired me over the years is, um, is a simple one, but was very powerful is by Mahatma Gandhi. And I might not say it exactly right, but it's kind of goes like this, uh, be the change that you wish to see in the world. Um, just very simple. When I heard that, I was like, wow. Um, and that kind of also inspired me to get into renewable energy because and I saw growing up in India, what's happening and you know, with climate change and just the general environment. And I thought I should, I should be doing something about it. So, yeah. That's powerful. So I would love to frame for folks the problem set and then the, the organization. So at a macro level, we all engage in the activity we engage in because we, we identify a need in the world. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100 KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. How would you describe the problem that uh, EVS Inc. as an organization uh, is out to solve in the world? So Nico, we, we are a pure play engineering firm. And in the world of renewables, where a terawatts of energy needs to be put in the grid, there is a huge labor need for engineers who develop, uh, who engineer um, when it comes to electrical engineering, civil engineering, structural, geotech, land survey. We do all of it. And our clients who, who could be developers, who could be EPC contractors, they don't have those skills in-house or it's not their main focus to develop those skills in-house. And that's where we come in and we help out. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. Help me understand then the ideal customer profile for a company like EVS that is a pure play engineering firm and why they would choose to outsource that engineering aspect when they're probably, I imagine, a big company who could in fact do engineering internally if they so desired. Yeah, there are multiple reasons. One is um, a lot of times engineering is probably not their biggest profit maker mm. for a construction company. And because we are so focused in engineering, we can focus on quality, we can focus on efficiency, we can deliver it better. There's also the risk aspect that a lot of companies want to dissipate some of the risk. They don't want all of the risk of doing a wrong engineering calculation in-house. And you know, if you read Jim Collins's Good to Great, it's the what are you really good at, right? And the hedgehog concept. And 
you know, when a big EPC looks at their hedgehog concept, they're probably very good at building stuff, not necessarily engineering it as well. And that's where we come in. Our hedgehog concept is engineering. How do you take risk off the table for them? We do carry insurance. So if we make a mistake doing an engineering... Yeah. So there's literal offloading of risk skip. where like they don't have to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they, we, we, we are engineer of record. So we sign and stamp our drawings uh-huh. and seal our drawings. Thank you for that. Wait, um, first of all, that's a key term. And one of the things I like to focus on for folks, for the, for the Suncast audience, is some folks are listening that have no idea what the key terms are, right? Engineer of record, EOR. I know what that is. And you and I take for granted many times that people know what that is. Why is an engineer of record important? Who cares? Yeah. Um, all the AAJs or authority having jurisdictions, they care about having an engineer of record sign off on a drawing before you can go and get it permitted or go and get it built. Um, so we and there are other companies like us um, who provide that service and um, yeah, take that risk off of the plate and take that load off of the plate from our clients. Why is the industry then uh, bifurcating? Is What are the other advantages of hiring a pure play engineering consulting firm like EVS to take on that workflow? Um, one of the things is our experience working across the board with different EPCs, different developers, different AJs, just getting to know kind of how to work in Texas or how to work in California, how to work in, you know, groups like us get that very deep expertise. Um, and then also just being efficient with the design, right? And there's also the kind of the back and forth, right? Between the engineers and the um, and the EPCs to some extent where, where it comes to safety versus cost saving. And there's kind of a healthy, I won't say conflict, but exchange of ideas where, you know, we are looking at, how to value engineer this project, we will also look at safety and we'll have that back and forth conversation and and make sure that the design is correct, but also properly value engineered for our clients uh, who in a lot of cases are EPCs, um, in some cases are developers. Um, So I think our clients see a lot of benefit in in that as well. Got it. So you use the term, uh, thank you for for defining AHJ, authority having jurisdiction. They are the folks that authorize projects to move forward. They permit the project and it is a critical path item for the success of a contractor who probably is the contractor of record on the project. They will subcontract to someone like EBS and their their main job as a general contractor on the project is to reduce risk for the owner and to make sure it gets built on time and on budget, right? So what I heard is the ability to learn as a GC or let's call it like, I mean, I know that like NextEra is one of the companies that you guys have worked with. I mean, that's public knowledge. You've worked with Poen on energy storage. So it, I mean, it even bears the question, like why would Poen hire uh, a, a, an EVS, right? But that ability to spread the risk and to move faster by learning from what's happening in the marketplace, from your competitors, from your peer, from other storage uh, manufacturers, as an example, places companies like EVS in the in the center of that Venn diagram, in the crosshairs of having specific knowledge that can be applied rapidly and the ability to mitigate risk, right? And I heard you say that also you allow for a, a certain sense of accountability. There's a healthy exchange of ideas, but as the engineer of record, it's your job to say yes or no and make the decision. You introduced a third thing that I had not contemplated, but that you and I have talked about many times. In fact, the first time that we ever recorded was because you did something specifically for Femur at the time called value engineering. Can you explain the concept of value engineering for someone who doesn't have 
a, be- a great, um, maybe they, they've never heard it or, or they are, haven't got the experience of how it's been applied. Could you give an example or two of how EVS specifically has done value engineering to the benefit of their customer? Yeah. So there are many, many examples how we can provide good value engineering. So there is one way to design a project where we follow the exact specs by a developer or a utility. And that's you know, some people would like to call it a Cadillac design or gold-plated design. Uh, and then there are different ways to look at it. Like, how can we save money without compromising quality or safety, right? And it could be through using a particular inverter, whether it be string inverter, central inverters, or through some ampacity analysis where we put cables on the ground. And the way we do it could mean millions of dollars. Um, also kind of stringing with the NRL SAM stringing, right? Like we, we have started thinking about how soiling impacts the stringing, you know, instead of just a pure calculation. And NRL gives a lot of flexibility to the engineer record to kind of make engineering judgment calls on those kind of things. So we, we are actually make or break when it comes to millions of dollars worth of, you know, project costs when our fee is actually minuscule of that construction cost, but, but our decisions have millions of dollars of impacts, um, even on foundation, right? For steel foundation. Yeah. All of that. Can you give us some examples where, because a company hired EVS, they were more, I'll call it more effective in what they did. But specifically, I'd love to hear examples where you've saved millions of dollars or you've innovated on a product because uh, on, on your customer's behalf. I'll take an example of just pile foundation for our clients. Uh, this is on the structural engineering side where there could be a very, um, there could be a very conservative design where it could be whatever, 15 feet pile depth. And this is a lot of steel for a 200 megawatt project, which is kind of our uh, default system size these days is, is 200 megawatts uh, at the minimum. As an engineer of record, you can do two things. You can go very conservative and design it with everything in mind, but you do have to keep in mind like seismic aspects. You have to keep in mind the corrosion aspect. You have to keep in mind kind of the wind aspect of things and then do, um, you know, do an appropriate design, which doesn't go just too broad brush, right? That this is the, and then we will work on lengths of the pile. You know, there could be six different lengths, uh, but also work with the client understanding is it going to increase our labor cost or is it going to really save you money uh, if we do six different pile sizes instead of either 12 or it could be two? And the right answer is somewhere in the middle, probably. It's not like one pile size is great for the whole site or 12, which could mean a lot of coordination. So that's where we work with our clients to get them that value engineered product. Yeah. And it's a techno techno-economic evaluation that takes into consideration more than just the strict rules around uh you know, wind load for that point and and steel strength versus pile depth, you're looking at how do you apply a um, a shared load across 200 megawatts, right? And evaluating things as, as far from pile uh, strength as the labor cost savings of doing fewer piles that are bigger or the, or the, the actual structural cost savings of doing shorter piles rather than longer piles. Like maybe it's more piles, but they're shorter. Correct. So that, as an example, that techno-economic evaluation is something that would take, uh, and and there's now like, thankfully, software that helps aid in that, but it's something that would traditionally take a contractor if they tried to insource that. They don't have enough projects that they're working on to be able to know, to kind of have that matrix, that that shared experience of, 
best uh, the best practices, right? A, a starting point even to know what the right um, starting point is. Yeah. One more thing that kind of our structural team is working on is reliability or performance-based design, which is, I don't know if you heard the big uh, thing that came out with FEMA and ASCE, they're making it very stringent considering like piles similar to buildings where people actually reside and, you know, putting those very stringent requirements for solar projects, which could actually kill a lot of solar projects utility scale because of just the pile cost. So our team has been working very hard on some new concepts called reliability-based design or performance-based design, where it's more of kind of a lot of statistics or looking at, you know, what is the probability of actually, you know, happening. Uh, and we'll have to work with AHS, we'll have to work with independent engineers to kind of get it across the board, but we have started to work with some of our developer clients and EPC clients to implement that uh, where we don't have to go that crazy on on these pile designs. You know, I've heard a little bit about this. Um, many suggest that sort of nefarious activity is happening from other other agents sort of su- planting seeds at, at the government level that would suggest that solar should be more tightly regulated, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that as an industry we should be doing better or differently to uh, to kind of hit head on this um, this FEMA ASCE uh, suggestion around the requirements? Educate, educate, educate. Um, yeah, and I think that's what our team is also doing, being in these ASCE sessions and being in the part of the committee and just talking about, you know, some of the rules um, are being suggested by people who don't know solar very well uh, and are looking at it again, just like a hospital building, right? Where if the building collapses, there will be, it'll be catastrophic. I'm not saying that if a solar project fails, it won't be catastrophic, but we'll have to understand the scale of it, right? And you know, the risk associated with it. And it's not apples to apples comparison. So um, yeah, so I think, you know, I have done my bit of, you know, when this initial ruling came out of, you know, putting my post on LinkedIn about, you know, um, and SIA supported it, right? This SIA was the one who came up with even the language to send to senators and send to rule makers about kind of the monstrosity of the rule or like, you know, how how um, how bad it could have been for the solar industry. And it's still kind of there. Some of these rules are still being put in place. But I think with the reliability-based design or probability-based design, the performance-based design, uh, some of these could be mitigated working through AJs and owners, engineers, independent engineers. Um, that's what we are trying to do. I'd like for you to brag a bit about the progress that has been made in the industry that EBS has been privileged to be a part of. You've got some, I'd say, foundational or landmark kind of projects uh, that you've been a part of. Would you share a bit some of the milestones or accolades that EVS has garnered under your leadership? So I started with EVS back in 2014. And at that time, kind of helped start the solar group. Uh, there are obviously you know, a few other people who were very involved in getting that kick started, uh, along with me here at EVS. Um, yeah, we are about 25 to 30 people at that time, mostly focused on commercial civil engineering or civil engineering for the military or federal buildings. Uh, and since then, we have kind of shifted our focus towards solar, battery storage, substation, TND markets. In that time frame, we have done about 20 gigawatts of solar till date, which has been constructed or under construction uh, as a, an engineer record. I think we have worked at least in 
30, 35 states now. Uh, we are registered in about 48 states across the country. So we have worked in every single possible solar state. I think majority of our work is in Texas and California. Yeah. Um, wow. And Cali. Okay. Yeah. A lot in California. Oh, a lot of battery well. and stuff in California, right? Yeah. One of our projects recently got an award uh, called Arrow Canyon. Yeah. That was uh, in Nevada. Uh, that was, it, it got an ENR Engineering News Record magazine. Very proud of that. Uh, and then ton of other. We have done about four gigawatt hours of storage as well now. Yeah. Out of, I think, US might have 26 or 30 gigawatt hours. Um, in the grid, and we have done four out of that, which is very, very proud to say that by next year, we'll probably have achieved 10 plus gigawatt hours. So yeah, that's a really, really big feather in our cap. One of the things that stands out for me, and we talked about what's the value of a, a, an engineer of record or a third-party engineering firm for contractors in particular downstream, EVS, through your team's leadership, has really leaned hard into battery storage. You know, there's a reason why you deployed four gigawatt hours, why uh, EDF chose you to be a part of that DC coupled project. And I sense that there was an active decision internally to differentiate yourselves in a world where third party engineering can sometimes start to look very uh, plain vanilla and, and similar and hard to uh, compete in quotes. Um, could you talk about some of the discussions early on that led you to lean into battery storage and how that has become a differentiator for you? Yeah. And again, one of the big parts why I really appreciate working at EVS is, um, you know, the forward thinking. And Dennis and Andy, really, I'd commend them for that. Um, you know, just getting into solar when solar was not that popular or not that profitable. But we got into storage at around 2017 um, when we did um, Project for Connexus uh, here in Minnesota. At that time, it might still be the largest storage project for a co-op. Uh, it was about 38 megawatt hours at that time. And we knew that we are going to have a lot of learning lessons and we'll probably go significantly over budget, but that was not the concern. We were forward thinking. Um, and that's the part I love working about at EVS where, you know, it's not a publicly traded company. It's a family owned private organization where we look at the long term. So we did get that experience working on that project, a lot of lessons learned. But since then, we have worked for almost every other Integrator, so be it Powin, be it you know BYD um, or LG. LG, we have done a lot of work with them and on their projects. Fluence, uh, you know FlexGen, every single IHI, we have done a lot of their work as well. So that gave us varied experience. As you can see, like some developers or EPC might just stick with Fluence and they won't get to know, you know, what Powin might have to offer or what BYD might have to offer, and we. We have got all that pros and cons in our back, you know, uh, in our back pocket. I would imagine that your partners, meaning your customers in the uh, con in the construction side. Now, so that, let's frame this for folks. Who are the customers downstream? Customers that you can name. That's public information, just so folks can understand, like who buys from you. Um, Sixty to seventy percent of our business is with EPCs, yeah. which is, you know. Um, the contractors. So this is like and, Solve, formerly Swinnerton. Um, is Next Era considered an EPC? Not really. They're no. still they a push it developer. down to someone else yeah. who hires you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So like the Blattners and Mortensons and the Solves, like the three big ones. Yeah, I mean, so I think we have worked for Depcom. I guess six to seven of the top ten EPCs in the right. country and have very strong relationships with three, four of them. Got it. Um. So and so that these guys 
will look at uh, these, and I use guys as a euphemism for like these corporate folks, um, but these entities, these EPCs, they have a decision to make when, do they have a decision to make? Like are developers coming to them and saying, we've worked in that there's going to be storage on this, but we don't know what we're going to use. Yeah, I means so we see a mix of that. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, even on the inverter side, mm -hmm. right, they will come and ask the question, right? Hey, we really want to use this, but we want to hear your opinion on, you know, whether to use this or that. And what have you seen? What are the downsides, pros and cons? Sometimes we'll just be handed like, hey, here's the battery storage, right. you know, solution that you need to use and figure it out. Do you ever push back on that? Sometimes. Sometimes. If, you know, if they're trying to do a DC coupled retrofit, which we have done, there's certain products that just don't work, right? Right. So, you know, even if they come to us and say like, we want to use this and this is a DC coupled retrofit project, we'll be saying, is this inverter ready? Is this, you know? What does that mean for the layperson? What is DC coupled retrofit? It's like if you have a solar project already installed and you want to attach a battery storage project to that, but you want to attach it before the inverter on the DC side, before it gets converted to AC electricity, that's actually more complicated than putting the battery storage on the AC side after it's converted. It's feeding the battery. It's having the capacity to feed the battery directly from the solar field instead Correct. of through the conversion, the power conversion device. Yeah. If done right, tons of benefits. But if, if you pick the wrong equipment and wrong system, it, you know, it'll be a nightmare to try and do that. Hey, friends. I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane, come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th, and hang out with us at InterSolar. InterSolar North America and Energy Storage North America, as you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar energy storage and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to intersolar.us, use the code SUNCAST. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. Can we talk a bit about your kind of what brought you to the United States? You grew up in India. And as you and I have talked about this in a, a few times, I feel like India is like Australia. People don't realize how big it is and how broad and diverse it is. And they really only know, like, you know, uh, use it to further Australia, like they know Melbourne and Sydney and don't know of like the numerous other amazing places. India is, you know, at a scale, probably 10x that, 100x that. It's a giant country. It's the fastest growing country in the world. And you come from a very different place than what most people are familiar with, Mumbai, uh, as an example. Could you talk a bit about uh, your childhood growing up in India and the unique um, sort of geographic location that you came up in? And it's funny you mentioned Australia because India and Australia are like the biggest cricket rivals. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, we need to beat them in and the former, next World Cup. And former Commonwealth countries. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, yeah, I grew up in the northeastern part of India, um, a city called Guwahati in a state called Assam. In fact, a lot of people in India don't have great knowledge about the northeastern eight states, um, which you know, I think things are getting better, but a lot of people won't be able to even tell 
what is that state? What is their capital? Uh, you know, if you're from northern India or southern India. So it's, it's very close to Nepal, Bangladesh, Thailand, China, uh, even closer to China than the central part of India. What's also really interesting and that most people don't realize, what's special about Guwahati, specifically in the in society of India? Yeah, so Guwahati is the largest state in the Northeast. So a lot of people call it the gateway to the Northeast in India. Um, it's not a big city as compared to other Indian cities, but still about a million people there. Guwahati is a very cosmopolitan place. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of consider it similar to Minneapolis to some extent. There is not one industry that is just predominant. There is a lot of industries. Like there is, you know, there is ag- agriculture, there is commerce, there is technology, there is everything. Like it's not Bangalore or Bangalore, which is known for its tech hub. Um, so it's kind of kind of like Minneapolis to some extent, where just a lot of different industries, but a good, vibrant city. Uh, at some point, like all, all of us, you have to make a decision about uh, what education looks like post high school. How did you decide where in this massive country you were going to pursue higher education? Yeah, so there was an interesting system when I was growing up in India. Uh, after doing high school, there would be an entrance exam for engineering, uh, where if you are in the top, whatever X percentile, you can choose out of engineering colleges in India where to go to. So I sat for the engineering exam and I cleared it. I was actually thinking of doing mechanical engineering when I got out of school. Um, but then my brother-in-law, who was a civil engineer, he he asked me, like, have you considered doing architecture? Um, because there is a lot of need. And he also at one point told me, like, hey, you and I can start our own business. I'll be a civil engineer. You'll be an architect. Maybe we can do this together. And I started looking when, you know, it's kind of like an interview process where you get to see all the names of the engineering colleges and you can choose. And like the people ahead of you get the chance to choose before you. So there was this short list of different engineering colleges. And I got into um, this college called D.Y. Patil. It's Shivaji University in uh, Kolhapur, India. It's western part of India near Pune or near Mumbai. So it was it was kind of a scholarship program. Um, so for very minimal cost, I was able to get very good education there doing architecture. During that process, I kind of got to know the concept of sustainable architecture. And that kind of really piqued my interest, how to design energy efficient buildings, you know, using solar, using other techniques, uh, and just using the, you know, um, the sun in a, in a better way, yeah. you know, how your buildings are oriented and wind and all of that. That's when I started looking at schools. Um, where can I learn more of this? And there was like, nothing in India. This is 2005, six when I was looking. and But I started seeing some schools in the US that was offering that education. And uh, and my sister was also uh, preparing for her GRE. And she said, hey, you can have my materials if you want. And I said, great, uh, free books to read. So I took it up and I actually um, sat for my GRE and then ended up doing fine. And I came to university at Buffalo, um, the SUNY Buffalo in upstate New York to do sustainable architecture. Why Buffalo? Well, that was the only one of the only schools that was actually offering sustainable architecture as a major for masters. And uh, it was actually a very good program. I was, um, you know, Buffalo is actually a great school. Uh, you know, um, I was very happy to see, you know, the professors I interacted with, you know, just the culture. It's huge on sustainability. Like even then when I joined, they had the 2020 goal for sustainability, which we have already blown past, but they had right, really good, really ambitious targets for being sustainable by 2020. Uh, and I think they have done really well. Um, so yeah, that, that piqued my interest. And uh, 
I came to Buffalo, New York to do my master's. You know, I'm not going to let you off the hook here because one of the things that I know that you're not sharing, uh, possibly because there's a lot of things that you could share, is that, and I didn't ask about your family structure, which I usually do, um, but you are not an only child. How does your close family structure play into the, the decisions that you've made around your career? You must have heard so, from some of your Indian friends that Indian parents are quite persuasive. <laughs> so, um, so when me and my sister were applying to schools in the U.S., um, Buffalo was actually the school that was common in common only school in, that in was terms in common. Of, like you both got accepted to Buffalo. Correct. Got yeah. it. She had gotten much better schools than me. Uh, she's the smarter one in the family. But yeah, Buffalo was the one that we got accepted to accepted to, and it's a good public university. You know, affordable. My parents were like. You guys have to go there. Wait, and so together, your, parents, your parents trumped the decision. They basically said, we're going to choose for you. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I didn't have too many options. She had more options That's than amazing. me. So it was, not like a, it was not like a losing card for me, but maybe for her. Yeah. Um, so you came to Buffalo, got your degree in sustainable architecture. Again, still thinking, going to go down the architecture path. But now because your sister had studied for her GRE and kind of pushed you in that direction, your direction changed from... Um, going from you know, being an architect in perhaps New Delhi to pursuing a graduate degree in the United States. What a, what a directional shift. Yeah, it was. Um, I didn't actually, growing up, I did not see this future, but I'm glad mm. that I'm here. Well, while, while and, we're on it, what did you see as your future? What did you, what did you want to become when you were a kid? When I was a kid growing up, I actually wanted to become an astronaut. Yeah. Um, but there was not many. Now, actually, India is making big strides in in. Um, in space. But at that time, it was like, a, unless you came to the US, there was nothing you could do uh, in India uh, to be an astronaut. So, Well, and, and now at, in your late 30s, you wouldn't be one of the pioneering Indian uh, astronauts. <laughs> You'd be yeah. working at the, at the engineering desk, perhaps. Correct. Yeah. And you're wearing glasses, so, which is an automatic kick out of rejection. The, yeah, automatic rejection. There's a big story behind it, too. Um, <laughs> it was a result of an accident. So I actually... There's another one. I actually wanted to go to the army at one point. Really? And I got, I couldn't do it because of my, I had an accident with my eyes and I got glasses when I was 14. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a crazy story, but I could wow. have very well be in the army. How about that? Instead of, instead of doing could architecture. It, you could be in the army, in, in army or you could be leading the, the space race for India. Um, and yeah. instead, you went to SUNY Buffalo, you graduated and you joined a company, a little known at the time company called Just energy. How did that change the trajectory of your architectural career? You know, in hindsight, that was the best decision I made or best thing to have happened. Um, so graduated in May of 2009, as you can remember, peak recession, there was like literally no architectural jobs. I wanted to work in a group like Parkinsonville, which did a lot of sustainable buildings and all, but there was literally nothing available there. So I started looking and Safari Energy, you know, that was the new name. But at that time, just Energy was looking for interns. I applied and as an intern, you know, as an intern, yeah. So doing um, basically, you know, I obviously had CAD skills, you know, um, doing a lot of AutoCAD, and then I also had done some energy, like like PVSYST, but similar softwares like eQuest, you know, at that time uh, for building modeling. So they looked at my resume and they said, "Hey, would you like to join us as an intern?" And I said, "Yes." Um, went moved on to New York City. So they're like right in Manhattan. Um, and I kind of at that time, probably first of seven, eight people, um, you know, and but, the you know, one of the first guys to really set up drawing sheets and 
Worked there for a couple of years, just had that best experience doing a lot of, even at that time, really big projects on malls, rooftop solar for malls. That was a big deal. Wow, yeah. And so I think they were very ahead of their time to working with REITs and getting getting into the space of doing um, solar on malls and commercial properties. Yeah, worked there for two years. Actually learned a lot from managing engineers as well and kind of working with engineer records and, and all of that, that kind of really instilled a deep respect for engineering in my mind, you know, how they kind of make projects happen. So that was just a great experience. Those of us who know how um, sort of the, some of the iconic companies that came out of the Northeast, Safari Energy was certainly, was certainly one of them. And really one of the visionary companies in the Northeast that understood the direction that distributed rooftop solar was taking and has you know built a, a large portfolio now part of a bigger company. But why then in uh, you know a couple of years into your career would you leave what uh, what was certainly a fast growth distributed generation solar play? Starting at Safari Energy, I learned a lot in the first two years and Matt Rudy and John Orderman, just amazing visionaries, great friends. I met John recently when I went to New York. But then there was just another company coming out of India called Lanco. Uh, at that time, they were one of the largest IPPs in India and very ambitious. They wanted to build a lot in the US doing utility scale solar. So that was kind of the next frontier for me. And obviously, I was young and getting married as well around that time. And um, you know, they reached out to me, offered a much higher salary and also like the opportunity to work on larger utility scale jobs offer. You know, At that time, I couldn't turn down and I ended up taking that that offer. As we know, not all that glitters is gold and lots of companies didn't weather the, the storm of the mid to late teens in, in the U.S. solar industry. Good buddy of mine and yours, Russ Wright, went to Lanco from, uh, from I think Sun Ed was where he was before. And um, I remember uh, Lanco kind of making a big splash in the U.S. and a bigger splash <laughs> leaving the U.S. when they had to, I think, bankrupt their India division, right? How did losing that job, which just to jump to the punchline for the listeners, how did losing that job in affect you as so, you know, having been at a company like Safari and taking what must have felt like a sideways step to Lanco? Yeah, that was probably the toughest time of my career. Uh, means there was the toughest time was actually getting a job first, <laughs> first and then probably the second toughest time was losing um, the job when Lanco went bankrupt and they kind of laid off all of their US employees. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as an international um, person on visa, I just had 30 days to find a new job. And that was very difficult. Um, I did gain a lot of good experience working at Lanco, doing projects in U.S. Virgin Islands and some larger utility scale jobs. Um, but yeah, it was a very hard time. Um, and I did get an offer at that time from Standard Solar in Maryland and Wanzek Construction. And there were a few other, you know, Luckily, there was there was jobs available at that time, and so got an offer from Wanzek, got an offer from Standard Solar. And that time, my wife was also in a visa situation where she had to go to school uh, to be able to work in the U.S. And she had already done one master's, so we looked at Wanzek, and she had got an acceptance from NDSU. And we thought, well, it's a better salary, it's also um, cheaper place to live, and she could go to school. And that kind of made our decision to take up that job uh, at Wanzek Construction after Lanco went bankrupt. Worked there for a couple of years at Wanzek. Uh, again, great experience. We were, at that time, Wanzek was building a few smaller utility scale jobs, but trying to get into the larger utility scale job space 
But again, I think you know we we are losing out on a lot of the projects that we're bidding to the Swinertons of the world and Mortensons of the world. Um, so we kept we finished up a few projects that we we're working on, but then kept bidding and bidding, and it was not going anywhere um, at that time. This was 2013 and 2014. Like I was actually pulled in to do some wind projects, and you know I was doing wind wind energy single lines and all of that, and I was like. This is not a, what I really signed up for uh, when I joined Wanzac. And, you know, and then, you know, at that time I started looking and EVS came. Um, so how did you meet Dennis and Andy? It was sheer luck. Um, it was through a recruiter. A uh, recruiter reached out to me and said, hey, hey, there is an engineering company called EVS. They are looking to get into solar. Uh, they have some good relationships with some EPCs, some large Midwest EPCs. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And I went and I talked to Andy and Dennis and was just very, very impressed by their genuineness and personality, ambitions to grow into solar. And yeah, and I ended up joining EVS. Um, just take a, took a big leap of faith. I was nowhere ready to start building a solar group, but they put their trust on me. They helped me, uh, guided so, me as well. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so Dennis is the founder, Andy's his son, and they've grown this business for how many years? So the company started in ni- 1979. Wow. Uh, Dennis took over as the owner in 1982. So a multi-generational family business. Yeah. So it's been around, f- this is 2024 is going to be our 45th year in business. Wow. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. yeah thank and, you. And what did Dennis see in renewables? So I think this is actually really insightful just generally as a business owner, because you've shared a bit with me about the vision that Dennis had for the growth of uh, the population, the growth of like where the business prospects for his company and how he ultimately decided to pivot towards renewables, which had remarkable success. Yeah, Dennis is absolute the classic visionary that you can think of. Even today, he's 80 years old and he will send articles about AI and energy storage <laughs> and Love how it. that space is I meet going this up. Guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. Um, if you come to Minnesota, I would make sure to have a lunch with him That'd and you. So, so, yeah, he was the guy, I think. Coming out of recession, he looked at like, you know, which areas are really growing and renewable energy was a big one for him at that time, wind. Uh, and Minnesota was not growing in population as much. So being a civil engineer, there was not much growth in that sector. And so he looked at wind and he started going to these wind conferences and started making those connections, which Dennis is great at. And um, yeah, built, built up some relationships. And also he has deep connections with Samsung and LG. Uh, being a South Korean, um, you know, he came to the U.S. If I remember clearly, in 1969. So, but he he was born and raised in South Korea, and so he has a lot of connections there with Samsung and LG and some of those bigger South Korean companies. And he kind of connected those dots with some of those EPCs, that's U.S. EPCs with Samsung, and that kind of started building that relationship on the wind side. That kind of then came over to the solar side. You know, a lot of Work that EVS does is based off of trust and relationships. And that's what kind of, even though we are not ready as a big engineering group to do utility scale projects, the first project that I did was a utility scale job in 100 megawatt in Alabama, wow. uh, out of all places. So, how'd you, how'd you get that job? Through the relationships that Dennis built. Mm. Um, you know, again, through, you know, from the wind side, we did a little bit of work on the wind side uh, for this large uh, EPC based out of Midwest. And you know, we kind of transferred that over to solar and um, they just knew that even though we were not, we didn't have a big engineering group, we will figure it out. We will be honest. We will be, um, you know, 
we'll be humble and we will take the feedback and we'll improve ourselves. And that's exactly what we did. And we delivered. And that project is still there. Yeah, a couple of things stand out that are both South Korean and Midwest values. One is very long-term focused um, rather than short-term and you know, thinking multi-generational, multi-decade. Uh, the other is, uh, and this is very Midwest and certainly very Minnesota family feeling, right? It's a family business. It's built on relationships. Can you talk about those cultural values as they pertain to EVS and to the partnerships that you've built? EVS's core values are respect, humility, and integrity. And that's something we came up with just looking at Dennis and how do we describe Dennis? And we look at him and and that's something, if you talk to any EVS person, you'd see that it reflects uh, the values of respect, humility, and integrity. And we like to say that we don't have any space for jerks here in, in EVS. Like there's no ego. There is always teamwork. Um, all these teams, there's, you know, there could be some healthy level of intra-competition, but not at the expense of each other. There's never any department. Every director is always looking for the best of EVS, not for the just the best of their own department. And that's, I think, the Midwest values, the values that Dennis brought and our core values of respect, humility, and integrity is really you know, key to make that happen. So we talked about Dennis as the founder. Andy is his son who has taken over now uh, to run the business day to day. And <clears throat> effectively, they brought you in as director. Today, you're vice president. And essentially, as you described to me, uh, if we were to bifurcate in like a C-suite, Andy would be the CEO, you'd be the COO. Um, as it is, he's the president, you're the vice president. Most of the operational activity rolls up to you and the sort of finance and HR stuff rolls up to him. Is that accurate? That's correct. Was it clear to you when you took on the role of director that you were taking on effectively the, the operational role of helping this family business transition into a renewable energy company, like become a renewable energy focused company? No, that was not even in my mind when I started. Means my goal was just to try and get as much work for solar and kind of deliver them, yeah. uh, you know, to the best of our ability. Yeah. So solar was at that time just one of the four or five departments, yeah. even though we are a very small company. And like a 30-person company, right? Yeah. Yeah. At that time, somewhere between 25 to 30 people. So yeah, uh, no, that was not in my mind that I will I will be doing this today. Yeah. Um, so... Paint the numbers for us just so folks can appreciate the scale of what you've helped EVS achieve. 30 people and I, who knows how much revenue, but like, can you take us from 2000, what was it? 2015, 14 that you 2014 joined October is when yeah, I joined EVS. So the last EVS. 10 years. Talk yeah. about the last decade of growth at EVS under your leadership. Yeah. So we, again, with the help of a lot of others, <laughs> uh, started with zero in solar, um, in 2014, and we are we did about 30 million dollars. We are going to do about 30 million dollars in 2023. I think about 96 percent of that revenue is gonna come through solar energy storage and substation markets. So you know, zero to 30 million. And how many say. employees? Uh, we have about 167 employees now at EVS, and again, five x growth. Yeah, pretty much all of them are dedicated to the renewable energy industry. I think that I want to uh, underscore something that you said earlier that folks might have missed. Dennis looked at the core business being civil engineering and recognized that civil engineering is going to grow as the commercial market grows, meaning commercial buildings, commercial sort of shopping malls, et cetera, not residential. So as a population grows, then the need for more 
businesses and entities and services to to serve that population will grow. And therefore, his engineering firm was on a get, was going to be constrained by the population growth. Didn't see population growth in Minnesota, so he needed to change the business so that he was not linked to population growth. He could be linked to something that is market growth oriented. And he saw that renewables was that thing. And I think that that for sure is one of those prescient moments that um, that you all can look back on. But then also, to their credit, a recruiter brought them a young, hungry engineer who had been in the trenches at two pioneering companies. Because even though Lanco was um, was a dead end in your career, it didn't, you weren't there not learning anything. You actually jumped from, that's where you jumped from rooftop to utility scale. What do you feel you've learned most now in this leadership role where unwittingly, if you want to put it that way, you've become the head of operations, the vice president of renewables for this, what is it by most standards, a massive uh, engineering undertaking. How did you grow in building that team? And, and I want to focus around a few things. One is that you had to reorient folks' careers for them. You had to, which means you don't have to tell them what they're going to do, but you had to attract them to something better and new and how, and they're like civil engineering to some other engineering um, or core focus around buildings to a core focus around this thing that they can't understand that goes on posts and like follows the sun, right? Can you talk about that process of like really the mindset shift of this civil engineering firm to becoming a solar engineering firm, uh, folks internally becoming solar engineering uh, professionals? How did you navigate that? Yeah, it was a long journey. And again, that's based off of trust and relationships, you know, because we trust each other. I Means there are directors here who are a director of, of commercial, civil, uh, of military group, and they saw the growth in the solar sector and the renewable energy sector. And even though we are a small group in the solar side, we are growing exponentially. And also the client relationships that we built along the way, they were enduring, they were just very solid, and we knew how much work they were doing in solar. So they kind of saw that writing on the wall that solar is going to grow rapidly and and we could use all their expertise, you know, on the civil engineering side, surveying side, you know, in the solar um, in the solar market. And that has really helped. And even like because we are in the military, we did a lot of work for military in different states. So we are ready to take on utility scale solar because we had already worked with AJs in Texas and California and Florida and um, Arizona through our military experience doing civil. So we are kind of, that was one of our selling points to our utility scale clients that we know the AJs well, we know the local conditions well, we can take on a utility scale project in Georgia, for example, uh, because we have done military work there as well. So yeah, we made the transition. So what you've been talking about are some of the, the touchstones, like the, the core, the anchor clients, if you will. But there's something that I enunciated earlier that I think you did really astutely which in the entrepreneurial where we refer to as product market fit, right? Because as an engineering firm, you can do a lot of things. And the question is who will buy it? And how do you focus your team on the thing that you have, the, you have a better proclivity for and that more people will pay more money for and that you can scale, right? How did, as, an, as a leadership team, you all triangulate around the product market fit, like the place that you wanted to, to sit, right? So highly skilled at batteries, highly skilled at utility, sitting at the nexus of that, where you are doing value engineering for battery manufacturers, battery or value engineering for inverters. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, as a result, 
you started getting customers as referrals from equipment manufacturers that were like, no, you need to work with this company because they've got their shit together. Yeah, that was definitely one of the ways. Uh, again, relationships, we don't do a big marketing publicity push, but it's a lot of word of mouth, our reputation in the industry. Uh, we also just came up with um, our competitive advantage. Again, you know, looking at the hedgehog concept, what we can do well. We came up with the EVS ecosystem, uh, which E stands for experience, C stands for customer service, and O for one-stop shop. Um, so obviously, experience-wise, we have done 20 gigawatts. Um, customer service, again, you won't know until you work with us, but we really pride on our customer service and just meeting deadlines, you know, just listening, working with our clients uh, you know, on the, in a very respectful manner and listening to what they have to say. Um, and there are a lot of engineers who are like really good, but they are like, it's my way or the highway, right? But we are not that company. And then, and then the one-stop shop, this is what, where we listened to our clients and they figured out that it was a lot of coordination for them to work with an electrical engineering firm, then hire a subcontractor for civil engineering, then a separate sub for structural. So we kind of brought all of that in-house. We started structural in 2019. We brought in geotech. We brought in, we always used to do survey, but we brought in substation in early 2021. So, so now we are offering that one-stop shop where... You know, when you are doing, let's say you need a basin for civil engineers, like, you know, you need a basin on your site, an extra basin, but that started to affect your site layout for electrical. You only have to coordinate that internally. You don't have to go back to your EPC client and say, hey, can you talk to your electrical engineer and ask them to move their panels because I need a basin here, right? So that coordination becomes so fast and so quick uh, that it's very convenient for our clients. Is there any, any for you notable evolution in your either your the market or customer dynamic that has changed the way you as an executive be, have, have sort of see the world or, or think about the company? We started seeing a push by developers trying to hire engineers for final engineering, for the mm. IFC level engineering. It's kind of still, the market is kind of trying to figure itself out. Some developers are trying to do that. You know, some Meaning developers, in-house. well, in-house as in hiring us directly. Oh, okay. So hiring us directly to do the engineering, then we kind of send that engineering package to the EPCs to build. So we are not contracting directly with the EPCs, but with the developers. But that market is still trying to figure itself out if that is a very smooth process or not. Uh, means right now it's still majority work. Engineering work is done for the developer for the EPCs. I'm sorry, that's a shift we started seeing, but it's not it's not happening yet. I mean, that would have to be a well-funded developer. Oh yeah, yeah. Means yeah. And there are, Many of so, them out there. So as we see the market shift in developers going from out, of, out the gate to a platform model where they raise a couple of hundred million in, in equity, they now have dry powder. And to move more efficiently, they're outsourcing the, the final engineering so that they can bring a full package to an EPC. Won't that cannibalize a little bit some of the back-end business that's your core business if the market moves that way? No, it's as long as they are hiring the engineers, the developers, which we would expect most of them to. Um, this is the developer's way to try and hold EPCs accountable as well. Like, hey, you need to build to our specs. Yeah. Right? Does it also lock you in then as the um, owner's engineer for the for the project? So owner's engineer role is a little bit different than the ah, engineer okay. record. Right. So we still would have Thank you for clarifying. A, lot of, yeah, a lot of projects that we work on for EPCs. The developers still have an owner's engineer. Mm. That is separate than us. Uh, uh-huh. 
And their job is to kind of, they will go out on sites and look at- The job is like, to make your job harder. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Which is fine because they hold us accountable. The owners, right. engineers, the independent engineers, uh, which makes us better. Um, and so we have, a, have had a lot of battles, um, friendly battles in the past with other engineering groups, some of the famous ones too, but that only makes us better. So yeah, there are sometimes owner engineers that are working for the developers directly and engineer record working for the EPC um, and two completely separate entities. You mentioned that you've got over 150 employees now. Hardest role or roles to hire for as you're growing a solar engineering team? The high voltage substation team is a very um, niche um, skill to fill, you know, especially relay settings or like we are also hiring a director of the substation group. Um, so those are the roles that are very difficult to fill. Yeah. Really good civil engineering project managers are hard to find with solar experience. You can find civil engineers with commercial experience, but difficult to find good engineers with solar experience. Um, How much training is required for them to convert their civil commercial experience to solar experience? Not a whole lot. I means I think if they have worked in solar for a year or two, you know, they'll be ready. So, And are you um, at a place where you can give them that year or two of training? Yeah, and we are doing that actively. So we yeah. have hired commercial civil engineers um, from the commercial market and we have trained them up in solar and they are, you know, already quite effective. Yeah. Uh, How are but, you giving them that training? Where is that coming from? Um, there's a lot of internal training materials we have built up over the oh, years. Okay. A lot of internal training videos, you know, uh, SOPs, um, standard operating procedures. Yeah, um, yeah that's it's, quite, it's that's a, quite on the vanguard right there. I mean, there aren't a lot of folks that would... I mean, a problem that we have in the industry, I said it a bunch of times before, is we create our own infl in inflation because we hire away skilled labor from our competitors, pay them more to do the same job, right? right. That's, that's an industry creating its own inflation because we're unwilling, because we're moving so fast, I'm doing air quotes here, anybody not watching, we're moving so fast that we can't afford to train people, right? Which is the fallacy in thinking that our industry has leaned on for far too long. I beat this drum until I, until it changes. Um, and I'm impressed with companies like EVS who say, you know what, actually, we recognize that it takes less than a year. And if I give this person this kind of training, and essentially, then I essentially build the kind of loyalty that you can't buy. And yeah, that's what we have focused a lot on internal training, um, for sure. Is there anything specific that you look for in uh, a hiree? Yeah, our core values of respect, humility, and integrity. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, the technical... We do a culture interview at the end of our um, technical interview. So there's usually three rounds. You know, one is an HR interview, then a technical interview, then a culture interview. And culture interview is usually with a director of HR or myself or Andy, and depending on the position. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we, and, and sometimes we also have to just trust. We have to tell them that, hey, this is a position that we expect you are looking at for long term as well. And these are our core values of respect, humility, and integrity. And if you think you are not, aligned with these three core values, then this is probably not a good fit for you. Have you found a good question or two that for you is a, like one of your go-to interview questions? It's a, something that you, um, that yields great return in terms of your insight into who the person is? I wish I had a silver bullet question, but I mean, there are a few. I mean, so one is, you know, how someone has dealt with a underperforming employee, right? Mm. You know, um, it's important for us to know that you know, they have dealt with that employee with respect, right? Because yeah. there's there are some hard-charging, high-performing 
leaders and individuals who kind of throw this person under the bus. Uh, but that's not what EVS is all about. We work with people who are um, who are struggling. We um, treat them with respect. Nobody ever feels that they have not been treated with respect. Yeah. And we have turned around a lot of employees who who are struggling uh, and to be like very high performers now. So that's a really interesting and it's a counterintuitive perspective as well. It's one uh, that I want to un- underscore here because you hear hire slow, fire fast, mm-hmm. right? The concept of dealing with under underperforming employees is counterculture to the way that sort of the the fast growth sort of startup culture works. Yeah. Yeah, that's really actually funny. We just discussed that like last week. I think I can align with that concept if they are not uh, adhering to our values of respect, humility, and integrity. Then you need to fire first. If if we interviewed incorrectly or they just misrepresented them during the interview and they said, hey, I fully align with these values and then they join and we see like not humble, you know, low integrity, doesn't have respect for people or either one of those, then yeah, we would fire fast. But in any other case, we will work with them. How have you grown as a manager of human capital? You came on and your job was to prove that this sector was going to work for the company. And so your number one hat was sales, right? Mm -hmm. But eventually you are not personally responsible for designs anymore. You're not personally responsible for all the sales that happen in the organization anymore, but you are personally responsible for the human capital. How have you grown in terms of managing that? Yeah, that probably has been the biggest growth in my career. And, you know, dealing with engineers, right? Engineers love numbers and they love absolutes, right? So you have to spend a lot of time working with them, kind of developing their skill sets. I was lucky to, you know, again, Andy and Dennis invested in uh, leadership coaching for me and others at EVS as well. Uh, some of our directors uh, also take that executive coaching. Um, and we talk to a very well-known industrial psychologist. Um, and, you know, she helps us with some of our leadership questions and aspects. And uh, and then just through our, you know, our leadership meetings, um, you know, I have learned a lot and reading books. Yeah. <laughs> so have you brought any particular models that have worked really well or, or like sort of paradigms of the way a way a way to manage that you found effective? We are following some of the EOS uh-huh. you know um concepts. Uh again, we are just looking at it. Um but there so is this is relatively new, the concept relatively of, relatively uh-huh. new, but we have EOS for those un- uninitiated is entrepreneurial operating system. But uh um oh gosh, I'm blanking now. Anyway, we've talked about it at length on on the show. Uh there are a number Gino of Wickman. That, yeah, Gino Wickman. Thank you. Yeah. Number of books that we recommend by Wickman. Yeah. And some of the concept we have known for even since I joined. Uh, yeah. And we were asked to read the book Traction. And Traction, so really yeah. the accountability piece of it, right? Like one person accountable for a certain task or certain, you know, vertical, right? So yeah. it, it it is very important to have that role clarity. And we have done better and better every year uh, trying to provide role clarity to our people. Did you, did you hire an EOS implementer? We did. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big step to yeah. running L10 meetings. And yeah. I, know, I, know all, I know all the lingo, uh, not a, I'm like one step short of deciding that I should be a, 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 a EOS coach. I know enough about it. Yeah. Still at the beginning of it. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see, you know, as we grow to a 200, 300, 400 people yeah. organization, how, mm-hmm. what other concepts we'll need to bring in, right? Yeah. Because... Um, we have our own different way of doing strategic planning that is different than EOS. 
Is there anything that you've tried and it failed, maybe because of your business model or maybe because it's just a bad idea, but that it was sort of suggested like, oh, you should try this. And you're like, oh, that just didn't work. Looking at a different um, aspect of business, we had hired within the renewable sector, we had hired a guy to help us um, branch out, but it didn't work out because mm-hmm. he realized after a certain point that he was not that leader. Um, he was more of a doer. Um, and, mm. uh, you know, he was gracious enough to just come to us and say like, Hey, I think I signed up for the wrong job. Uh, I thought I was, when I realized the gravity of it, you know, bringing in work and, and all of that, he kind of ended up leaving, mm. uh, which was a good lesson learned for me is he didn't have much backup when it came to like that leadership aspect. Uh, right. So he felt a huge burden of, sh- you know, burden falling on his shoulders and he was not like me. He was more of a heads down, get things done guy, right? So that was a big lesson learned for me that in some cases we could probably hire a doer and start a department, but in some cases we need to hire a leader. Um, And there's a big distinction. Has that changed how you interview? Like how do you determine? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. means we, again, would love a silver bullet. Like, hey, here's a questionnaire. Answer this questionnaire and, you know, you get an A plus, then you are hired. But we have to just ask a whole bunch of questions. Um, recently, I we interviewed someone at a very high level, and the best we could do to kind of really understand this person's leadership skills is give that person three or four real life scenarios that we are facing, and yeah. just ask them. I sent those questions to this person in a day before our interview, and asked him to just sleep over it, think about it, and yeah. respond. Like, how would you deal with this particular three or four different scenarios? And so I think that's that has helped us. Uh, those those kind of questions and yeah, the ways we interview. Is there anything that you are, because you're on the bleeding edge of technology in some ways, that you are continually having to teach others in terms of the lexicon around the product or how it works or how to integrate it into a project that you could share with the audience? Yeah, I mean, so we have to continually teach our clients, right? Just recently, and again, please don't ask me this question because I won't be able to answer, but we had to explain to our client what is the difference between a pile plan and a pile plot plan. And it's it's also the way it's delivered in the field. Like, do we deliver PDFs or do we deliver actual plans on a sheet of paper when they are driving the piles, right? So uh, it has to do with, <clears throat> and it's a, there's a big difference in pile plans and pile plot plans that I discovered recently too. So yeah, we have to continuously coach our clients through those kind of things as well. Is there something that you feel your customers often take for granted about what they think they understand about the value or benefit of um, separating roles and risks? Because you mentioned your one-stop shop, and I find that sometimes folks want to have more control by not hiring a one-stop shop. What would your answer be to that? Again, we have listened to our clients mostly, and that's how we have come up with these business decisions of adding high-voltage or substation teams um, or electrical for, for that matter. For example, if your PV team, the team that does the engineering for the solar plant is a different entity than the ones that is doing the substation for the same project. You might have a different reactive power study done by the solar team versus the substation team. And if they're not aligned, you might have a different suggestion for a different number of inverters. So if it's the same group, it becomes much easier to kind of get to that same result also, a lot of times, all of your collection system feeders are coming into the substation. And if they're not coordinated well, you could have different designs. And so, you know, and also the grounding design, because you are doing a grounding design for the solar project 
and the substation project, and they interact with each other because it's kind of an one big system. So having that within one group is extremely beneficial and a lot of headache removed from our EPC clients. I think those are great examples that are going to be relevant for the portion of our audience who truly understands at a utility scale what it is that you're doing, which is perfect because that's, um, you know, that I find that listeners of the show, sometimes they'll message and say, thank you. I had no idea what was going on. Thank you for helping to sort of disintermediate the, or like reframe or rephrase. And there's some things like what you just said that will mean something to a smaller subset of listeners <laughs> and not to the whole and not to the, everyone who's listened this far. Uh, if if you're feeling a little bit lost because you're not in utility so, scale solar, uh, I'm going to. I hope that, I'm glad that you've stuck around because I'm going to shift gears here with Sohan as we as we round third base and head for home. Uh, I'm curious: is there anything that you've changed your opinion on, uh, either uh, through your own research or having been presented with research or data? Yes, um, when I joined us, joined EVS and kind of growing through. Uh, the ranks here at EVS, I always used to think that strategy is the most important thing. But over the years, I realized that culture is probably the most important thing. Strategy is very important, but you know, there's a saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast and just building that cohesive you know, leadership team and people helping each other out, no politics. Those are like, doesn't matter if you're in the greatest industry or not. If we don't have that, we are going to fail. And we're lucky to have that here at EVS where all the leaders are aligned. I think Andy and Dennis have done a fantastic job of driving the culture, uh, which I have been a part of. And um, I think that's probably my biggest learning in all these years. Yeah. Hmm. I love that. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Who, and this is general, this is not related to the industry, but who is impressive to you and what characterizes them thus? In the industry, I have really looked up to a lot of people. Sheldon Kimber, I really like him for mm. his kind of Futuristic looking, futuristic thoughts. Uh, Shail Khan, um, he's a great futuristic thinker. Um, so I listen to them quite a bit. Well, Jigar Shah, obviously, just mm -hmm. you know, a great proponent of the industry. Dan Sugar for his kind of just down to earth nature and kind of reaching out to people. And you know, yeah, he's he's been fantastic. So there are a lot of people that I really look up to. Yeah, um, yourself as well, Nico. You're doing a fantastic job and kind of spreading the message. Um, yeah, I think okay. there's just a lot of great people in this industry that I look mm -hmm. up to. I appreciate um, being put in a category with four folks that I genuinely um, also look up to. Honestly, I find each of those individuals particularly impressive. Sheldon is one that um, gets overlooked by a great number of folks that are not in the utility scale sector um, because he <laughs> specifically is focused at the utility scale market. But it's hard to be in the utility scale sector and not know who Sheldon Kimber is. Um, but man, he is, I appreciate, you said his futuristic thoughts. I appreciate that he is unfettered. He is, un, uh, he is uninterested in uh, other people's opinions of or perception of his reality. <laughs> yeah. And he is convinced that his reality is the true one that we all should be headed in. Um, and that is, that is a sign of a truly visionary leader. And, um, and he's been, he's been so right so many times that it's hard to, to be a naysayer. <laughs> yeah. You know, when he came up, think about this. Sheldon and I um, have known each other for several years and he came to me in 2020 during the pand pandemic and he was like, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff in hydrogen and no, nobody's talking about hydrogen. What if we did a series on hydrogen? So we did the green hydrogen series that we launched in December of 2020. 
Very He's early. Seen, yeah. Very early. And at the time, I mean, that was three years. I mean, he has a four year head start on most people. <laughs> right. Um, it's amazing. Um, was there any advice that you've gotten early uh, that served as foundational insight that in hindsight really helped you be successful thus far? I forgot to mention one person that has actually really helped me in my career. Um, his name is Steve Hansen. Um, he came from Mortensen. He was their um, director of business development. One of the guys who was at Mortensen helping them start their solar business. He was a close friend of Dennis. He joined EVS in 2016. He just retired last year, uh, September of 2022, from EVS. You know, he gave me a lot of good advice throughout my, you know, the f- five years, six years that we worked together almost. You know, if you don't grow, you die. And, you know, I didn't remember, I didn't really understand that in the beginning. Then I started to realize, okay, what that means. You know, building up the pot of trust with your clients, right? Like sometimes you have to give to your clients. Sometimes you'll make compromises and then you'll build up that pot of trust and then there will be one day when you will be needed to take something out of that pot of trust from your client. And I have used that numerous times in my career, built such great relationships with our clients, and that always works. Um, numerous other things that Steve um, brought to the table, like um, skate to where the puck is going. And, you know, this is this is obviously one of ice hockey's famous quotes. I don't remember the name of that. Gretzky. Gretzky, yeah. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, uh, that was a beautiful quote that I heard um, yeah. from Steve. That was a Gretzky quote. Um, so yeah, I've always learned a lot working with Steve throughout that time. And um, yeah, so that has been fantastic for me. So we've talked a bit about the tension of growth in leadership. I think that a key to leadership is actually being able to make tough decisions, often sooner or faster than you are comfortable with. Can you give me an example of one of those tough decisions that pushed you out of your comfort zone? Yeah, Um we had to let someone go. Um, that is always a very difficult part of the work that we do as a leader. And there were some integrity issues. And we luckily we realized it early on. And this was kind of early on in my career too. And that, you know, I went through a huge growth phase um, during that. Um, That's probably one of my toughest things that I did. Um, did you hire that individual? Yes. Um, yeah. And so in, in a sense, you were dealing with that thought in your mind of where, how did I miss this or how did I fail? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that was kind of, um, it's happened a couple of times now, uh, but we have done really well since, you know, we have always taken lessons learned and done really well with that. Obviously, especially even earlier in my career uh, at EVS, I had to deal with that a couple of times. And the second time was when I was, I learned a lot. It's telling about your integrity and that of the company that you embrace <laughs> the reality that people don't fail, the company fails them. And it often happens in the hiring process that the company fails to identify that they're not a good fit. And then it happens in the management process that the managers don't know how to help that person work up or out of the company. And, um, and often folks will just blame, they'll, they'll place, they'll reassign blame instead of taking ownership. Uh, I believe Jocko Willink uh, has popularized the notion of extreme ownership through a book that he wrote by that name. But when it's hard for you to let someone go, it shows that you are, you take ownership of the reality that they're, um, you hold, you hold their future in some ways in your hands. And, and it's incumbent on us to really help people move in their career, either up or out. And that, that personal growth is, is really important. And if it's something where there's an, an integrity issue, for example, how do you handle that? Not only how do you deal with like, well, how did I miss this? And how do I put 
things in place to assure that it doesn't happen again. But how do I help this person to deal yep. with that? Right. Yep. Because obviously, if it's an integrity issue, you're not going to be a great reference for them. <laughs> they yep. got to go out in the market and figure out how to get the job. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you see a lot of really cool um, stuff that doesn't come to market for a while. What do you see right now that won't be in the marketplace for another six to 12 months, but that we should be thinking about and preparing for? Yeah, it means I'm very excited about the new long duration storage technologies, um, like the energy vaults of the world. Obviously, iron air battery batteries with farm energy, they are making a lot of splash uh, recently. Yeah. Obviously, we need answer to long duration energy storage more than lithium ion. Um, so those are a couple. Um, zinc, zinc iron uh, batteries yeah. are, is another one that I'm looking forward to. I was very, very optimistic when I saw vanadium flow in the beginning, but yeah. It hasn't made you know that splash yet. Uh, so, yeah. so there's always winners and losers. But I'm actually very excited about Energy Vault and see where they go. Um, yeah, with their that technology. Is fun. So I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast um, you, with um, it's Robert Picconi. With Robert, yeah, yeah. he. I, I would recommend that episode for for everyone because he is apart from being the CEO of a really um, transformative company, in my opinion. He's a great entrepreneur. And there are some lessons in that episode where he really does speak to the the heart of uh, innovation and managing growth. And he's been, he's done it in three different industries, which is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously green hydrogen. And then I'm very curious to see where carbon capture goes as well. Obviously, right mm. now, a lot of the discussion is in the fossil fuel industry with carbon capture. Yeah. But, well, if we can, if you can capture carbon out of thin air, which is happening in Denmark or Norway, yeah. one of the Nordic countries mm-hmm. where they have built, if we can make it energy efficient, well, if we can make it economically feasible, yeah, that, that will be awesome. If you can, yeah. if you can just, just capture carbon of thin air and put it in the ground, then use that material to build bikes. Yeah. That'll hat be amazing. Hat tip to, <laughs> hat tip to uh, a, a new friend who I've known about for a while through another friend, Jason Grillo, uh, the, um, Tito Jankowski was just on for our COP28 episode and he created a company called airminers.org and uh, it is specifically about direct air capture, right? Specifically, yeah. not fossil fuel uh, carbon capture, but direct air capture. Uh, they have, I mean, there's so much information to learn, but I would encourage folks that didn't and you as well to go and listen to specifically Tito's contribution to our post COP28. Uh, it was a, it, we Published it on a Friday as an industry pulse segment because Nate uh, Giovanelli and I are, are launching this new segment uh, called Industry Pulse that's a holdover from what we're doing. It's kind of an expansion of what we do at RE+. Tito is just, he's got some great insight into that specific sector, direct air capture. So outside of energy systems, what do you nerd out about, Sohan? Cricket. I, I play yeah. cricket. I follow cricket a lot. Um, I love soccer. Um yeah. Just English Premier League, Champions League. Um, I do a lot of that. Uh, started yeah. enjoying playing video games with my seven-year-old. And yeah. So something that we can play together. Um, what video so, games are on your roster right now? Um, well, FIFA is one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, we also well, have Spider-Man. Have yeah, we have a PS5 that we got recently. So um, it's fun to see him trying to solve problems. He's very good at, you know, instead of watching TV, I feel like at least if I... I'm able to monitor his, you know, yeah. it's actually fun to see how quickly he can like figure out, you know, the, the game, 
um, yeah. better than me even. Um, and sometimes I play chess with him. Um, but I'm also trying to get better at golf, um, trying to get better at a lot of things. Uh, mountain biking, um, I just recently learned last year how to wake surf. So that was a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> wake surfing, like on the water behind Correct. the boat. Correct. Yeah. So, so much fun. Yeah. So Andy helped and me with that. And um, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. That was a lot you, of fun. How do you, um, how do you think about both mind and body maintenance? It's so important. Um, I meditate. Um, you know, I use this app called Headspace. Uh, oh, yeah. There's this guy called Andy. I love his voice. Um, yeah. It's very soothing. He's the re- <laughs> hey, Andy and Headspace got me into meditating. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. So he's very good. Um, but then, yeah, just also keeping your, body active um so i try to do whatever i uh, weight training running biking depending on means if i'm reading a book i'm actually biking a lot of times uh on a stationary bike because it's easier to read a book while biking can't do that while running no Um, i listen to books exclusively so yeah so don't be fooled by this bookshelf of books i actually (laughs) don't read books i listen to them i buy a lot of books because here's the thing speed reading hack and i've taught this to num- numerous people thanks to, to my coach JB uh, for teaching it to me. Why do I buy books? Because I listen to books first and then the second time I read through it while listening at 3x. And that is an absolute speed reading hack. So I've learned to read a lot faster for the things that I have to read, which is mostly online. But I will read a book and then if you listen to it again at two and a half to 3x, you can, because we, we actually can read faster than we hear. I'm using a similar hack, not exactly the same as you, but I actually buy a book and I also buy the audible. So I actually listen it at the same time when I'm reading it. So when I'm driving, I'm listening to it. Then when I'm at home or, you know, uh, doing a stationary bike thing, I read it and it's faster than just either just reading it. I cannot do audible at three X speed. I can do one and a half more than oh, that. While just, reading. So while audible reading, while reading, you absolutely yeah, can do it. That 3X is, speed. I think that is a really good hack. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to try it now and tell me and refer back. And I'll note that for those who can't, um, who are listening, one of the things I remember, and I actually remember saying this to you um, when we first met, like I have this thing where I'll like shake and like grab the, uh, grab someone's arm. It's just like, I don't know. And I grabbed your arm and I was like, whoa, dude, you work out. So you're actually like quite well built, man. Um, I mean, you're, you, it's clear that you take care of yourself physically. And I admire that because I know how busy your life is and how crazy it is with young children to run a company the size of a you know, 160 employee, $30 million business. Um, I mean, kudos to you for carving out time. When do you organize those rituals around in your life? Uh, it's always a tweaking mechanism. It's never like, I feel like, oh, I figured this timetable out with my two-year-old <laughs> and all of a sudden they start going to school. Then the whole timetable changes. So sometimes I go to the gym before I come to work, but that's not possible when kids are going to school. But this week it's possible then um, sometimes at one point I started going to the gym at, you know, lunch break. There's a gym very close by. Uh, but then eventually I also bought a treadmill and a bike and some weights at home. So then I just put a Netflix show and I will, you know, when I don't have enough time, that's what I'll do. Um, you know, 45 minutes or 40 minutes, I'll work out and watch a show. And that's... I've tried that. I can't watch anything. while I, I'm like, so... I don't know. I, I, I end up not watching because I'll be working out and thinking about something else. Well, Sohan, I genuinely appreciate this tour de force. Uh, you are a great, you're a good sport. 
And I feel there's a lot that folks can learn from you. If folks are so inclined, where do you like to be found? How can they reach out? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. And that's the number one spot. Uh, otherwise, yeah. I'm also on Twitter. Um, yeah, those are kind are of... Are you active on Twitter? A little bit. I don't post much, but I, I definitely... So, if someone in. DMs you, so like there are some folks who are on Twitter, but they're not really there. And if I DM them, they never respond because they're never checking their messages. I would respond if someone DMs me on Twitter. Right. Uh, What's your Twitter handle? Because we'll link to both. Yeah. U-N-I-S-O-H-A-N. Let's end today as we so often do with a bold prediction. What do you see as the critical path obstacle that we will need to overcome to really unlock the potential of the battery storage market in the United States? Uh, for long duration storage to become economically feasible, um, which is really you know, the farm energies of the industry. And I don't know the economics around it fully yet. Also, you know, the energy vaults of the industry, uh, once they are more economically feasible and utilities realize that the multi-dimensional values of these uh, storage technologies, I think that'll be a big breakthrough. Well, as that comes to fruition, I hope that you'll point me in the direction of the LDS companies, long-duration energy, LDES, LDES, companies that you see on the Vanguard so that we can interview them here. In the meantime, I'm grateful, as I know many listeners who have made it this far are for the time that you've given us, Sohan Das. I'm so grateful to know you, call you friend, and to finally had a chance to re, uh, recapture this conversation here on Suncast. Thank you, Nico. The pleasure is all mine. Well, thank you for sticking around for another wonderful interview here on Suncast. I want to say thanks to Sohan once again. I alluded to it earlier, but we did an interview several years ago now, I think three years ago, that I couldn't publish for a number of reasons. And I am grateful for how he has evolved and grown and so has the EVS story. Uh, at the time, it was very uh, a very little-known uh, company outside of the Minnesota and community solar market, and now they've just blown up and become such a great uh, contribution to the utility-scale, in particular, battery storage sector. I feel like there's probably more that uh, I need to learn about the, um, the battery storage side of the industry that Sohan and his team could teach us, so I'll try to have him back at some point, get one of his... Uh, one of his engineering team from the battery side on on the show at some point. And I hope that this served you. I hope that you will have internalized that you can become a leader inside of an organization with entrepreneurial spirit. You can be that entrepreneur inside of a business like EVS and grow to be the vice president running effectively the entire company as it pivoted from civil engineering to pure play solar engineering and now solar and battery storage engineering it's a success story that uh has uh, has a lot of learning lessons i'd love to know what you are taking away or what you learned from that success story in particular you can reach out to me nico at mysuncast.com i'd love to hear from you i'm also going to link in our description uh here on uh, the podcast or on youtube wherever it is that you're consuming this how you can find me on LinkedIn. You can, I definitely respond to a lot of direct messages there and Twitter uh, is also linked there uh, where I get less messages, frankly. So it's more uncrowded space if you want to try to reach me there as uh, my friend Robert uh, from Nebraska did so many years ago. Um, I, I, I salute and appreciate all of you who are creative in the ways that you do reach out. And uh, I'm honored and grateful that you listen and that you listened through this interview, which was longer than average, but I believe was very, very worthwhile. 
uh, I want to say kudos as well to, and though I don't know them, Dennis and Andy, for the uh, belief that you had in so- Sohan and in the solar industry at large. I know that uh, we as an industry are better for it. And you, I hope, are better for having listened through to this episode. Hopefully it was, in fact, a good return on that investment of time. If you would like to dig in more to the things that Sohan and I talked about, I forgot, I just realized I forgot to ask him about books and things like that, but we talked about quite a bit. And if you would like to check out the the show notes, you can find that over at mysuncast.com. Click on the episode notes tab. You know, I'd also like to thank our sponsors who help make this show possible each and every week. They make it free so that you can listen or consume wherever it is that you choose without paying more than your time and attention. If you'd like to learn more about them, please, you can find them on our homepage at mysuncast.com. You can find out more about sponsorship in general at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you can find their links to their various calls to action and ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, every week, just like they do. I'm honored to call you a listener and I'm grateful that we are here together on the front lines of the clean energy transition. If there's any way I can help, click on that connect with Nico button at mysuncast.com and let me know. Also, truth, if you click on the message button at the bottom or the leave Nico a voicemail, I get those and listen to them and respond. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solo Warrior. It's half the battle.